This week on the show, you're going to be hearing plenty about recycling old material. Don't worry, it's not a rerun. No, we're meeting the pioneering brother and sister team behind Bauer, the app that rewards its users with money and coupons or enables them to donate to charitable causes whenever they recycle everyday waste items. Founded in 2015, the business has grown rapidly in its native Sweden and has raised almost £4 million in late seed funding to power global expansion, starting next right here in the UK. CEO Suar Mert and COO Berfin Mert will be here to tell us why and how they've navigated the journey so far. Plus, later in the programme, we'll catch up with a former guest of the programme, the founder of OrcArt, a leading platform for discovering and collecting emerging art directly from the studio. Plenty of sharp minds and fresh focus in the frame this week on The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. We start the programme with Bauer, the family business leveraging cutting-edge tech and innovation in recycling, green tech and consumer incentivization to make a potentially transformative impact all around the world. It's a real pleasure to welcome Bauer's co-founders, brother and sister team Suar Mert, the CEO, and Berfin Rosamert, the COO. Suar, Berfin, welcome to Monocle. Maybe just to, to give our listeners, if they're not familiar with what Bauer does, what is this business? Give us the, give us the one-liner so we know exactly what, what we're talking about. Well, the one-liner is that we reward people for recycling. And it's very, very easy. So basically, you just scan the item you want to recycle. You bring it with you to the nearest recycling point. And once you've recycled it, you earn power points. You can use those PowerPoint for uh, redeeming them for money or for discounts on different products or also donate to charity organizations. Well, and so tell me, was part of the idea at the beginning this understanding that whilst people had good intentions about recycling, people were interested in sustainability, you needed to incentivize them a bit more actively. Tell me a bit about the sort of the chemistry of that moment when you figured that you needed to join maybe different aspects together to really drive progress in this area. I mean, the thing was that we actually had a working solution for pet bottles and cans in the Nordics, Germany, where you recycle your pet bottles and cans and get cash for it. So it started with that idea, and I had a lot of reusable cotton bags, which I always forgot to bring with me to the store. So I thought, why not having a deposit system for these cotton bags as well? The idea started from that and has pivoted a few times to the solution that we have now, where we think that by making the recycling part a no-brainer and rewarding, that is a way to go forward to get more items recyclable. Now, I guess maybe a cynic might say, look, this will work well in your native Sweden. Just generally, there's much greater social engagement. There's a better social capital, really, in terms of how the citizenry engage with their own responsibilities than in, say, the UK or other markets. But obviously, the story of Bauer is a story of growth, and it's going now beyond the Nordics. It's going beyond Scandinavia. Is it just that the Scandies are a bit ahead of the curve on this? Or do you think actually this taps into something which will engage with citizens wherever they are in the mm. world? I mean, the Nordics might be ahead in like being more environmentally conscious and like more naturally engaged in those type of activities, recycling. But that is really why we're tapping into something else, which is the financial incentives which is really targeting a much broader mass and why we believe we can really make a, a great difference also in other markets where the consciousness hasn't really grown yet. 
And is that, I wonder, so maybe why the UK was next in the frame? What is it about this market? Is it the geography? Is it the citizenry? What are the dynamics that made you think the UK can be next on our list? I mean, I would say since we launched in the Nordics, it was a natural step launching in the UK since it's a... Uh, English-speaking country, it's quite close to Sweden, and I would say the culture is quite similar as well. So therefore, it has become very natural for us to launch here. And also, I would say the market is big enough to actually to show to the upcoming investors that if we make a success here in the UK, it will be a successful all around the world as well, not only in the, how do you say, sustainable, conscious countries. Well, tell me just a bit, because there's lots of other questions I want to ask you, but tell me a bit about engaging with some bigger brands as well, because this isn't just about getting the citizenry to engage. You also partner with some big corporates that people will know the world over. That must be a very important part of this calculation about how to drive real change. The most important parts where the big brands come into picture is they're basically our business model. So they are the reason to why we are a sustainable business. They're paying us an annual fee for having their packs connected to our solution. In another way, they're also very important for us because their marketing is very beneficial for us. So they find huge benefits of actually marketing their collaboration with Bauer because they want their consumers to know that their packs are now depositable. And we, of course, see great privilege in that and benefits. Well, I'll talk a bit more about the nuts and bolts of how the business works, but I wanted to ask you both, actually, about this idea of a, a family business, a true family business, because there's lots of truisms about business, aren't there? You know, never work with children or animals. Some people say, oh, I could never work with family, but obviously so many of the great businesses are proper family businesses. What's it like? Was this another no-brainer that it would be a family concern? So I'll start with you, first of all. Tell us a bit about the relationship. I mean, of course, like all companies, I think co-founders have struggles. So it's not something unique for being siblings. But I think that the unique part of being siblings is that no matter what, at the end of the days, you are siblings. So you can be quite transparent, honest to each other, more or less say whatever you want. So I think that what has happened along the way is that you're calibrating and fine-tuning it so that you actually understand each other in a deep level where you're honest, but you don't hurt each other's feelings. So that is what has been a success and also strength of being siblings. So I think that a lot of people, when they say, ah, it's a struggle, I don't want to do something with my uh, brother or sister, I think it's because a lot of them hasn't done it. They think about, okay, if I can't like being having a dinner with my brother or sister, how the hell should I do a company <laughs> with that person? So I think that that's a little bit the background. It's obviously working pretty well because we're what, you guys are seven or so years in, 2015, is that right? When you kicked off the Center Price. What were you doing at that point? I'm always intrigued again with entrepreneurial folk who build businesses pretty quickly and enjoy a great deal of early success. Was that a product, presumably, of your previous experiences? Going back to that moment, how did you decide to get started on the, on the Bauer journey specifically? I was actually working as a sales manager at the family company. And I had this idea for a couple of years and where I felt like, no, I need to do this. I need to go out and try it out and not think about it all the time at home. Like, will this work? How should it work? And go from actually writing everything on a paper and just go out there and try it out. And I think that we come, both of us, from a, I mean, entrepreneurial family with the family company and so on. So I would say that the step going forward was quite easy of starting it off. 
I think one of the subject areas that our listeners on this show always find really interesting is about scale. And how do you scale sustainably? How do you make sure you're being ambitious enough, but at the same time, maybe cautious enough that you can keep control and make sure that you're still, every decision is made according to the principles that you got started with. What's that journey been like? Obviously, we're talking about new markets, Mm. greater investment in the space. How careful do you have to be that you're growing at a pace that you're happy with? Mm. Oh, you have no idea. It's so hard to say in what pace you should go and how big you should think or not. But I think one of the best things about our partnership is that we're quite different. I mean, we have a foundation of similar values, but Suar is very like visionary and thinking very big and let's do it all at once and enter all markets now. Whereas I'm more of the boring hand rake. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good combination, I imagine, yeah. because then it means that you stick to those values. You share the values, but you're methodology is a bit different. That's a good combination. No, definitely. I think that that has been one of the success key factors for us. And just to tap into this sibling part is I think that the way that we have been together to each other has also shown to the team what kind of culture we value. So therefore, I think that all companies should not only talk about their like colleagues, like it's valuable, actually act with it as well. And that has been the success so far with our company that everyone is like a family to each other. And it's shown by their leaders, I would say. So being a family and if you have the greatest team members, you will solve all the problems along the way. I mean, in a couple of years, maybe how we recycle our package is not the same way as we do today. But how we become the number one is how we build the company with our employees. So that is a success factor, I would say. Inspirational stuff. What's the management kind of strategy as you go into markets that potentially are on a scale hugely different even to your success in, in the Nordics, like the UK? Who knows where we're after that? How do you go about formulating the decision making? Is it about tapping other potential collaborators? Is it about seeking the insights from other brands, individuals, entrepreneurs that you admire? How do you develop the strategy for growth? I mean, everything starts with the user. Why it's so valuable now or the, the topic is so high on the agenda today is because we consumers value it so high. So the brands, of course, it's amazing that they're following, but it's due to the consumer actually wanted it. So therefore, our strategy is to get the user and have the greatest user experience in the app ever. Because when you have the users, the users using your app, the brands would follow. So the strategy is actually enter new market, get a real good understanding of what are the like initiatives, incentives that incentivize the consumer in that market, because that might change. Because here in the Europe, in UK, we are quite privileged. So let us say a discount on our voucher is maybe not that high valuable as in maybe a poor part of the world. So it's actually finding the keys uh, element to have the grassroots movement. And from there, it's just growing, growing the user base and the brands. I think one thing that's interesting is we're in a sort of a a challenging moment in the economic cycle, let's say, and consumers are feeling that. They're going to feel it more this winter. Do you think that makes it more difficult to try and tap into good consumer intentions because people are really just worried about the bottom line? They're worried about their pocketbooks. Or actually, it's what you just described. That's the opportunity because people are going to need to care. They're going to need to seek value. And even if times are tougher financially, that makes it more important to make good decisions? How do you make sense of the challenging economic climate? It's 
obviously a much more challenging time economically, but that just like serves our solution since it's really rewarding people financially. So we see it as a as a great opportunity, actually, these times. I mean, that might sound opportunistic and it, yeah. <laughs> So sorry for that. Well, no, but I think but but that's but that's the point, isn't it? I think it and it drives certain economies for individuals. But as a society, we can't afford not to do something now, however difficult the prevailing circumstances are. So it's a yeah. good. It, I think I think that's exactly right. It's opportunistic, but necess- it's necessarily for the good. so. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and to that point, then, what's the ambition? It strikes me there's clearly you guys are optimistic about the future. You're obviously ambitious. We're talking about more investment coming into the business, new geographies. Where could this journey take you guys? What's the limit of the ambition? Hmm. I mean, we want to come to a position where all packages has a value and nothing is called trash anymore. Because as soon as we have used a product, the package goes from having a value and serving a purpose to being considered as trash. And there is where Barwick comes in. We want to make sure that everything has a value. And the day that we'll stop is the day when Everywhere, all around the world, all packages is being able to be recycled with Bauer. There you go. That's pretty clear, isn't it? (laughs) Um, Where do the obstructions, where do they mostly come from at the moment? In your experience, as you're managing the day-to-day, is it that maybe governments are a bit slow at buying into incentivizing or just getting on board? Is it some big corporates? Is it certain geographies where progress is understandably slower where do those barriers what do they normally look like i don't know if they're barriers but they're challenges and i would say that the biggest challenges right now are the ones internally by that i mean we actually had this chat during our breakfast this morning that we used to be so like agile and uh, trial and error and like had this idea and over lunch we just made a decision and yeah And now, since we're a bit bigger, things take much more time and you want to really go through everyone to make sure that you have a buy-in. And that just naturally makes the decisions and the agility go a bit slower. But at the same time, as I mentioned, like the internal struggles as a challenge, that's also one of our, like, again, true blessings that we have this wonderful team that I'm so, so proud to be working with. And I'm just super positive that we'll be we will be thriving through this. You're, you're, you're making through. Well, just on that point, what does a great Bauer collaborator or hire, what do they look like? Do you find characteristics in people and you think they'll be a great part of the team? Or actually, can you bring people in and they learn from you and they feel from the business, they develop the characteristics you need? Is it a bit of a bit of both? Is there a kind of a Bauer type as you're adding to your team and growing the business? I would say what is the Bauer type is that actually they can be themselves. So I wouldn't say that at Bauer we make them become something that they aren't. It's more that they can actually say what they think about and express their feelings. And we love happy people. That is one of the core in our company where I like being happy. I think that a lot of things happening, especially during these times as well, all around the world, where it's too much things that we worry about, which is understandable. So let us, since we're spending most of our time at work, so let us try to be happy and positive there. So when doing the hiring, I would say those are the things that we look at. Not necessarily, of course, their their skills, but that is not the highest priority because the skills they can always learn. That is the part that they can learn. But who they are, I wouldn't say that they can learn so having a 
a good positive why where they actually value the, the human beings. Just to elaborate a bit on that happy part, we're very keen on making people comfortable to also not be happy at all times and to be vulnerable to actually show that they have other parts to themselves as well. So we usually say that to enter Bauer should not feel like now you're entering an office and now you need to switch off your home version and just switch on your office mode, but rather it should be like a, a fluent transition where you just feel that you can be yourself to the fullest. Well, I guess, and that is the ultimate manifestation of that family values that you talked about, because times are hard, times are good, but you're all sharing it together and you're all deep stakeholders, which is what a family relationship is like. Let me ask you both a little bit about inspiration. We mentioned challenging times, you know, the cold, dark winter months up in northern Europe. It can be a bit brisk. It can be a bit gloomy at times. Where do you get that inspiration? If you are feeling a bit down, what do you do to try and find that spark, whether it's to solve a business problem or just to have a moment of levity and a bit of joy in your life birthing. What does that process look like? Getting out into nature, <laughs> good food? Well, I don't know. What kind of stuff inspires you on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah. The first thing that comes to my mind is that I dance every morning before the mirror. So that's really bringing joy into my life. But also nature, truly. I've had these surreal moments in nature where I feel so connected and where I just feel... Yeah, you, you get a sense of what's truly important and the rest sort of just dilutes away. So nature is very, very, yeah, important for me. Uh, so what about yourself? But are you a, Maybe you're not a morning mirror dancer guy. I don't know. Tell me. <laughs> well, uh, I'm not a morning uh, dancer, though, but I'm a morning guy. And I would say, like, the, the biggest inspirational part in my life is my uh, parents. The journey that they have done uh, as refugees coming from Kurdistan to Sweden at the early 80s. It's like, if they have done it, coming with five kids to a new country, no language, no nothing, just a suitcase and five kids, I'm like... Who are we to complain about the journey with all the knowledge and the experience we have? So just go ahead and uh, we'll solve it along the way, I would say. Inspirational folks, they sound like. Let me ask you both for just a sort of final call to action. Obviously, people listening to the show, they can find out more about the business and people in this market are going to be able to engage with it very, very immediately. There may be people, though, who for a combination of reasons say, look, I care about this too. I care about sustainability. I care about the planet. I want to make a difference. But... The problem is so big and so complicated and so scary, I kind of don't know where to start. What would you say to people who think like that? So it strikes me from what you just said about your parents, that inspiration that the solution is just to do something and mm. get on with it. But do you understand, I guess, people who are a bit blinded by the enormity of the problems we face? How do they get over that and, and get involved and do something, even just a small thing to get started? What, what do you think they should do? I mean, I think that that is a challenge with everything that we do in our everyday lives where we feel like, will this make a difference? And not necessarily only in the recycling, like everything. If I become vegan, will that make a difference? And so on. But I think that only by, let us say, when it comes to Bauer, to, by scanning the items, we're trying to make the big problem quite simple. And that is by each time you scan the item is see how much CO2 you're saving by actually doing this. So I, I think that... Make big problems small so that it's tangible for the consumers. Because we tend to like things that are, how do you say, you can actually feel it and you see that the effort that you bring is actually doing a difference. So make big problems small, I would say. 
That's pretty good. That's like the longest journey starts with a single step or something, mm. right? Is there something <laughs> philosophical which I which I enjoy? Buffin, what would you say to people? I mean, do people say to you, look, even if I'm engaged with Bauer, I'm using the app, but I still feel it, it it's not enough. Mm. I guess part of it is just reassuring them that those small steps, if we all take them together, it does make a difference, right? Definitely. I totally agree. And just as an example, I mean, two minutes of toothbrushing is nothing. But in the long term, like, what difference doesn't it make? A huge. And that goes with everything, I would say. Not to think that I have to do everything, but I can do something. And if I do something, that we're all connected. That might inspire someone else to do something else. And it just gives ripple effects that, that will have a enormous impact in the long term. Huge thanks to Sua and Berfin Mert. That was the Bauer brother and sister leadership team. And you can learn more about their mission and what else is in store. Lots of exciting plans ahead. Just head over to getbauer.com. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. We change pace and course a little next up on the show. We're putting contemporary art back in the frame once again. Now, you might recall back at the end of 2017 that I sat down with Natasha Arslan, founder and CEO of Orc Art, to learn about the launch that month of the platform for discovering and collecting works by emerging artists directly from their studios. In the five and a bit years since, Orgart has enjoyed great success discovering promising artists and allocating their works as investment pieces. Natasha's built a global network, helping artists become more visible, all the while growing a real community of art lovers. So, what have those intervening five and a bit years been like? Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome Natasha back to Monocle 24. Natasha, welcome. Good to speak to you again. Here we are, about five years on from sitting in these very chairs here in studio at Midori House. Tell us, what's it been like? Has it conformed to your expectations and those aspirations you set out on your last visit here? It's been non-stop since the point I sat in this chair. And it's always discovery, innovation, firefighting, and at the same time, you know, moving forwards. My goal was to build a centralised platform whereby you could discover an artist from anywhere in the world first, and you could acquire them at the earliest point in their career and grow with them, you know, grow your collection or just follow them. And I think what's interesting about collecting art, even if you're starting to seek to collect you know, emerging new artists, it was always quite an offline mm. endeavour. A lot of it happened at graduation shows and it was obviously quite difficult for people to be in all those markets. So there was a heavy reliance on certain key figures in the trade to surface and discover talents. Your approach is very different. And I guess, actually, if we then look, what, two and a bit years later with the onset of the pandemic, mm. the whole sector was compelled to look at different ways of sharing, discovery. It became necessarily an online endeavour. So was there, to a degree, some good fortune for you in amidst all of those awful challenges, that terrible cloud that affected everybody in this sector and everywhere in the world, in every market, mm. I guess there was an opportunity for you to consolidate because you offered people the chance to continue to discover even whilst they were, in many cases, kind of the prisoner in their own their own living room, if you like. Yeah, 100%. It was a turning point for us. I think 
just in terms of mindset, consumerist mindset, specifically within my industry, the art world, it was a block for us in the beginning. People would always say, oh, I have to see this in real life before I acquire. And it suddenly became universally uniform to just buy online. It was a huge transition for our industry specifically. How's your relationship with the artists with whom you work and who, who you support, how's that evolved? Tell us a little bit about how that has changed. Sure. So in the beginning, obviously, we started fairly small. And I remember there were 30 artists on the platform. So I had a very personal relationship with each of them, many of which are now flying. We've worked with over a thousand artists now within different capacities. I guess... We try and have a personal relationship with each of the artists. I feel like each of the artists have different things they want to get out of the working relationship. We try and, like, with every artist that we onboard, we have a conversation with them. But, yeah, I guess time is, is more limited now as we've grown. Yeah, and that, that would follow. Obviously, the mission, in a sense, was this idea of championing new and emerging artists. Has how you champion them and what do you seek to achieve with your association with them? Has that changed a lot over the over the past few years? I think we've tried many different things in terms of how we've worked with the artists. Obviously, we have the kind of bread and butter, which is the platform itself. But through that platform, we've then developed an online magazine where we have backstage access to their studios. It helps educate clients about the artists. We've set up a live um, work artist residency back in 2019, where we occupied a Georgian townhouse in Marlebone just around the corner. So that was almost like an offline to the online where people could physically walk into the studios and experience that interaction and, and the work. And we had exhibitions there. We've also um, worked with artists on pop-up shows, exhibitions, both in London and New York. We've commissioned artists. We worked with an artist who developed the first blockchain artworks and he's blockchain as a medium. We've developed a virtual gallery during the pandemic. We've really kind of explored and, and worked with artists within different capacities. So you've refined the processes as, you, as you've gone. And to that point, and I was going to ask you a bit about being online, going back offline, etc. What's the ambition for the next five years and beyond then, Natasha? Is it to presumably consolidate, continue to grow, support these amazing careers. And as you said, it must be so thrilling to see artists with him. You've engaged at those very first, maybe sometimes tentative steps, and then you see mm. their explosion onto the, the market. That must be a thrill. But where do you see this going? I guess it's about managing scale, managing growth, making sure you can stay true to those founding principles again. How do you calibrate you know what's going to happen in the next the next five years well hopefully i'll be back in this chair <laughs> maybe sooner let's go sooner <laughs> i think sustainable growth is always on my mind and doing what we do consistently i think where our strengths are are the artists that we work with so continuing that level of talent that we're offering continuing to grow that track record we're operating in 50 countries, whether that be artists or collectors, so to continue growing geographically as well. I think we're always looking to partner with existing spaces. For example, we've got something very exciting coming up in Hong Kong. We've got a partnership with a very cool space. To begin elevating our presence there, we just had a partnership with an architect called William Lim, who is a very important creative within the Hong Kong scene. So we are definitely working with some interesting people who are, I guess, spearheading the importance of collecting emerging art on behalf of Volkart.
So, yeah, lots of excitement ahead. Well, will you undertake to come back and tell us about the latest progress in less this time than five years' time? Is that a deal? That is a deal. Lovely. Well, we'll look forward to speaking to you again soon. Great. Thank you, Tom. Lovely to be here. That was Natasha Arslan, founder and CEO of Orc Art. You can learn more about Natasha and the journey she's been on over the last half a decade or so by heading to orcart.com. And that's all for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. In the meantime, do keep an eye and ear out for Eureka coming your way every Friday. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Jack Dewars. Big thanks to them both, as always. And, of course, thanks once again to Suar and Berfin and all at Bauer and to Natasha and friends at Ork Art. Listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. You can follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform too. To contact the Entrepreneurs team, drop me a note or email laura at lrk at monocle.com. And as a final reminder, as if you needed one, don't forget on your travels around monocle.com to subscribe to Monocle magazine. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs. <laughs>